Hi everyone, welcome back to the final recap episode of season one for the Ethical Consumer Podcast. In this recap episode, I'll cover what you missed in episodes 31 through 40. Starting with episode 31 with Boonie Doon skincare founder, Pooja Ganeshan. Pooja and I discussed the cost of sustainability in the beauty industry, pink tax, and inclusion, not only with skin color representation, but making sure everyone is invited to the table and welcomed. So I went back to the drawing board. I went to our, our R&D labs, our manufacturers, and said, you know, if I want to say that every product Booney Dune ever develops is under $45, is that something you could do? And some of them said, no, we can't, we cannot formulate and manufacture for that price point. Uh, so we cut ties and we moved on and we found new partners who are able to do that for us. So that's something that I want to do. And we sort of communicated to our community that all our products will be priced under $45 um, moving forward, just because that's, that's important. Like, is it actually sustainable if no one is purchasing it? I don't know. It's like, is it, if a tree falls down in the forest, no one hears it. (laughs) And I think the biggest thing is that you just want to invite more people into your life who come from a different background and look different and have different experiences from you. And I think that's why pull up or shut up came to play is because if you're not inviting these people into these spaces, you run the risk of never hearing those voices in, in your world, really. Um, Episode 32, where's the SCOBY with Mambucha founder, Rich on Rich is an incredibly passionate human being. He had so many awesome stories to tell, but the ones I loved most were the ones where he was talking about his passion for the traditional brewing process of kombucha. Did you know that some kombucha companies no longer use scobies? As long as they make it vinegary and acidic and have some sort of carbonation, they're able to pass it off as something called kombucha that might be kombucha, but is it the traditional elixir of life kombucha? Listen to hear what Rich has to say about it. Um, we're talking like, you know, 410 BC is like, I think the first record, or AD was the first record of, of I, I really want to see this record too. Like I mm. looked for this record of, of, I think from the Qing dynasty, um, where they talk about something called... Um, or they, I think it was referenced as the tea of everlasting life. Oh, wow. Wow. The tea of everlasting life. It's potent. It must be good. <laughs> but who knew that it could be so yummy? Um, it was my mom that really brought that to, to my attention and to mm-hmm. my brothers and sisters at the time. Though she wasn't as good as she got better. Um at brewing over time and um but when she did i was like oh this is really good and i got really hooked on it in some of my late teens and college years and um then i started brewing and i'm like i need to make it as good as her and i started getting geeky on it and uh you know then i was like damn i think i'm making it better than her and why don't i just do this i love this there you go and i kept tasting all the other products that were available which weren't that many at the time. This was like 2009 when all this stuff started happening. I was like, ah, oh, no, this stuff tastes, mm, all this stuff tastes, ah, like, whoop, not like this. Like, and, you know, if it's being brewed in a 5,000-gallon stainless stainless tank, um, what's that? Sure. You know, like, 
we're so far away from again where what I'd mentioned at the beginning is this noble elixir that should be regarded with a lot of esteem and, and care. Um, the the mainstream and industrialization of it of the product has changed it. Mm-hmm. Episode thirty three is with Emily Hanna of Hanna Valley Protein. Emily shares her journey of trying to find a whole food plant-based protein powder. She was replacing some other things in her diet for health reasons, and the difficult one ended up being her husband's protein powder. Hear about her process, grinding ingredients in their kitchen to figure out how they were going to formulate their own protein powder. It went with everything I was learning, and I just didn't understand how there are so many protein powders on the market. It's so saturated, yet not, I couldn't find anything that just had whole foods that didn't add additional ingredients that, um, that just weren't good for us. Um, a lot of health food products have all of these like terms that are considered healthy, like natural flavors, or they're using stevia as their sweetener. And um, it just was mind blowing. And anything that was even close was so outrageously expensive. There are so many things out there that if you have any type of allergies or even just sensitivities to things, uh, I'm I really struggle with that. Especially I'm allergic to wheat, you know, mm-hmm. among other other sensitivities that I have. And I just wanted to give people like me. Um, I mean, everybody, it's for everybody, but I wanted people to have an option that they could be like, oh, there is something for me out on the market, on the shelf. I don't have to go home with my grinder and spend four hours making my own protein powder. Um, And then to find seeds, have oil, and all it does is make like butter, peanut butter type things. And it was just a nightmare. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's really fun to have that to bring to people that are dealing with those issues as well. Definitely. Episode 34 is with Old Capital Food Company co-founder Jake Gratson. Old Capital Food Company uses Iowa-grown soybeans. Did you know that only a very small percentage of soybeans and corn grown in Iowa are actually meant for human consumption? Listen to hear what Jake has to say about that and where the rest of it's going and how they only use the finest Iowa-grown soybeans for their tofu. Yeah, one of my uh, favorite sayings around this is that I was very proud to grow soybeans, but not proud to eat them. So we work with a, we have we have a partner in the soybean industry. They're actually where you are in, in Cedar Falls, uh, Stonebridge Limited. And what they do is they work with the buyers and sellers of soybeans. That they help the farmers figure out what beans are in demand for the time being, and then they, you know, by talking to the customers who are buying them, like us, and, and figure out what varieties should be grown, help them figure out where they're going to be moving, help them with uh, uh, cleaning the beans uh, and packaging them for, uh, for use. So they're, they're an extremely valuable component. So they work directly with the farms, and we work directly with them. Uh, we have met uh, a number of our farmers so that the, the, the circle is, is completed. But, you know, being an expert in tofu, I don't have also the time to be able to become an expert in testing and oh, for sure. growing soybeans. Yeah. So th- their role, nor does a farmer uh, have the time and energy to figure out where exactly to market these beans. So, you know, they actually fulfill a very, very valuable role in allowing us uh, and the farmer both to specialize in what we do. All the components of making tofu are something that you could do at home. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it because it would take you about four hours to make a block of tofu and it wouldn't turn out as good. 
because um, there's a lot there's a lot of uh, for the three ingredients that there are the soybeans water and the um, the coagulant there's a lot of uh, technical kind of understanding and you want to get the make sure all your temperatures line up with the, 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 the if the soy milk is uh, too hot or too cold it changes how it coagulates um, too thick or too thin so there's a lot of different ways that it can it can get away from you um, but yeah we, we, we the reason we design a lot of our own equipment is so that we didn't want to just be making someone else's tofu by buying uh, that equipment. We knew that uh, a big portion of, of what makes us special is that uh, the center part of coagulating, center part of the process of coagulating it and breaking it and getting it on the press, we wanted to make sure that stayed handmade and then kind of figuring out how our process works. We also like the look of our product, uh, which is our, in our, our baskets, our custom, the press baskets. Um, so they have a little bit of our, our look to it. And uh, we didn't want to just be making someone else's tofu. We wanted Episode 35 was with Simply Good Jars Ben Weir. Think adult-style Lunchables, but in a sustainable glass jar. The chef and founder of Simply Good Jars was having a difficulty when he was going through school having access to fresh, healthy food on the go. So he made his own. Simply Good Jars also donates a meal for every jar you promise to not let end up in a landfill with them. I like to think that sustainability at Simply Good Jars for me is my passion project. My, my direct title is, is head of strategic partnerships. And um, while most of that is a traditional sales role, um, I, I do you know, believe that there are partnerships that we've been able to, uh, to forge, whether it's with you know, Feeding America, you know, in terms of donating meals um, for every jar that is pledged not to go in a landfill, um, working with, uh, with even my old employer TerraCycle in the past to recycle our hard to recycle uh, packaging waste, uh, secondary packaging and things like that. So, you know, uh, for me, it's, it's sort of just, I know, you know, it's built into the DNA of the company and it's now really kind of built into my DNA. So something I'm passionate about and, uh, and, and certainly always hope I can contribute with that. And, you know, benefits of being a startup is you get to wear lots of hats. So many, you know, food providers will, you know, bring product to central warehouses where they sit for days or for weeks before they ever even get to the grocery store shelves. Our product from the time it's made to the time it expires uh, is 10 days, which is usually a lot shorter than many of the other products that we have. So to your point, we have, you know, thought about the food waste and have, you know, pre-portioned out these salads where, you know, hopefully we're giving consumers the ability to, to eat this either in one meal or, you know, the jar does reseal and you can have it over the course of a day or two. Um, but you know, that just solving for the supply chain becomes such a big part of what we do, um, just to ensure that the product doesn't get wasted. Um, and then, you know, just within the food system, there's tremendous amounts of waste also just built into the way that things are marketed. So, you know, we go out to an event, we're bringing samples to those events. Uh, many times, you know, it's very hard to predict how many people will be there. Um, so having those, those, um, uh, partners who are already donating to on the meal equivalent side, Many times we're also, you know, giving them, you know, pallets of, of, of salads that are, you know, getting close to their, their expiration date um, because, you know, in our world, hopefully nothing goes to waste. So, you know, we, when we can use the same sorts of ingredients from the same suppliers, when we can keep it as local as possible, we always, you know, design our systems around that. Um, but it's, you know, it's frankly, it's very challenging and, and we're always looking at how we can be a little bit better. Um, but, you know, for us, you know, extending the shelf life of that product, giving it the best chance to 
end up in the store, end up in a consumer's hands, and hopefully end up in their bellies eventually. Uh, that's, that's really where we, we spend the most of our time. Episode 36 was creating a more sustainable future with Blake Roop of University of Iowa Sustainability. Blake loves trash. Studying it, not creating it. And you'll hear her personal story of growing up on a farm in Iowa in which they had to do away with their own trash and her studies in Mexico in which she researched trash, how it gets to the Gulf of Mexico and how sometimes it doesn't get out. Like growing up on the farm in the middle of nowhere, like we didn't have garbage pickup. That wasn't a mm-hmm. thing that happened. We didn't have recycle. Like reci- there was a recycling day, which was like once or twice a year. We would throw all of our recyclables into the truck and take it to the recycling center, which was, you know, like twenty five miles away. So we had to do like physical hauling of our of our recycling, and then our garbage we just like burned. My parents to this day still burn their garbage, which is something that in rural Iowa, most people actually do. Like everybody has a burning barrel. So we call it. And I asked my dad the other day, like, how did you source burning barrels? Like, where did you find these barrels that became our burning barrels? Like as an adult looking back, I'm like, did you go down? Like, there's no Craigslist back then. Like, how did you get a burning barrel? Yeah. So I think that's where my, my passion for garbage and stuff comes from is because yeah, it was, it was a physical problem we had growing up where that we had to like actually physically take care of our own garbage which just made it a much more like omnipresent issue in our life because yeah everything we had to physically haul everything so yeah growing up with that flood and then the flood of 2008 happening and then I mean there's there's floods every year now it seems which is it's not something that's going to stop anytime soon but with those events happening, it was fascinating to learn of just how much of our stuff here in the Midwest ends up in the Mississippi from those events that we literally don't have control over and that we don't have control over our stuff ending up in those places. And I always just have these pictures of like people's dining hutches just like floating down the river oh, <laughs> in Mississippi, you know, like and there's a lot of, yeah, exactly. There's just so many people that work on the Mississippi as well, cleaning it up from of all of the stuff that gets put into it whether on purpose or or not so yeah episode 37 was with Nishal Banskoda of Nepal Teas. Nepal Teas is the first organic tea company to come out of Nepal and you're going to want to listen to the whole episode to find out why all of your teas should be organic. Nishal also shares a really heartwarming story about a language barrier between one of his chefs from the U.S and one of the chefs there in Nepal and how even the language barrier could not keep a connection from happening. So with the initial vision of really getting the community out of poverty, that is not just a side thing that we do. It's embedded in the core mission of the company that we are building a company and tea is really the catalyst for social change. So what happened with the chef is I and my Canadian customer were having a small you know, technical talk at um, the manager's uh, tea tasting room, and I could not find the chef. She was, uh, I could not find her, so I was, uh, hey, and our farm is basically, you know, it's kind of like an open book. Mm -hmm. It's not like other tea farms where you only get to see what the manager wants you to see, but ours is more like, you know, hey, you want to, you feel feel like this is home and do whatever. Like, if you want to help out, go go ahead, help out. If you want to just, you know, sit down, relax, read, whatever, do whatever you want, right? So I could not find the chef. And then the scene that I walked into, I was trying to find her everywhere. And then I went to the kitchen. 
And the scene that I walk into is still vividly remember. I remember that scene where, you know, she was laying down on the ground, rolling bread, passing it to my cook, um, Pushpa, um, who is teaching the chef how to, you know, uh, make that. Her name is Tracy, by the way. Mm-hmm. And um, she was, uh, Pushpa was teaching Tracy how to roll the bread and she was getting it from her and then putting it in the firewood to make the bread. Huh. And they made the dinner that night. And mind you, Pushpa cannot speak in English and does uh, does not understand English. Tracy cannot speak and understand in Nepali. <laughs> so people who have passion for food are just giggling and laughing and kind of working and making that whole, made their whole dinner that night, right? It was just amazing. And then on the third day, it was kind of hard to separate them because both of them were crying. <laughs> and as I am about to again, <laughs> and the and the and Tracy basically gave the bangle that she was wearing to Pushpa, mm. and Pushpa gave whatever she was wearing a hair clip to the chef, Tracy. And Episode thirty-eight: How Owatonna-based company Bushel Boy Tomatoes is providing the Midwest with close, local, fresh tomatoes all year round via their sustainable greenhouses. Hear about why vine-ripened tomatoes are so important to them and all of the sustainable factors of how their greenhouses operate from collecting rainwater to having their own bees to pollinate the tomato plants in that case. Yeah, so they're, um, in general, you can you can assume that they're, they're spending, well, first of all, they spend about half of their shelf life um, on a truck um, is, is the way that, um, to think about most produce that's entering the country. Um, so they're, so they're going to be in transit for, for three to five days, depending on, on where they're getting to. So it is considerable time, uh, that's in transit. Um, and, and because of that, um, and, and again, it was, this was the, the, really the value proposition for Bushel Boy when they started was we want our tomatoes to ripen on the vine, not in a truck. Um, and, and that's, you know, that is our point of difference. It's, it's why tomatoes that you get out of your garden tastes so much better than what you're used to at the store um, because you're, you're, you're picking them when they're ripe. You're letting the, that, that tomato itself ripen, you know, the way it was intended to, which is on the vine um, versus, versus in transit where it's, where the color is changing and, and, and getting more red, but the flavor isn't really changing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They, they, we've got hives that, they, that, that are in the greenhouses. Um, those hives get opened up uh, in the morning. Um, so the bees are, are out, um, you know, pollinating um, and then they return to those same hives every night. Um, so it is. It's it's um, it, it's it's just it's a, a really um, fascinating part of the things that you can you can do within agriculture indoors. Sure, and it's not manipulating nature; it's helping it where it would otherwise not be able to exist. Essentially, exactly. Yeah, and, and in essence, you're sort of you're replicating nature during its um, peak time, and you're allowing to have that that natural environment occur um, 12 months out of the year in, instead of just three or four. In episode 39 with Jody Hugrich, registered dietitian who works at the UNI Local Food Program, we discuss the importance of matching up and networking farmers to not only farmers markets, but also area restaurants and even school lunch programs. She also discusses how the UNI Local Food Program goes on to eventually work with some past students to solve the difficulty of food deserts in this community. 
And so with the UNI Local Food Program, we do have a lot of different projects that we're working on. Um, many of them are food access based, um, but there are also other programs. Um, right now I'm working on a USDA Farm to School grant with three school districts. So Farm to School, I love. I love working with the staff. I love working with students and educating them as early on as we can. So that's really fun for me. Um, also working on another USDA grant with Healthy Harvest of North Iowa and North Iowa Fresh, so two of our partners in Mason City and Clear Lake, and it's a curbside market, so it gives our consumers an opportunity to order local goods online and pick them up at either College Hill Farmers Market, Cedar Falls Farmers Market, or Waterloo Urban Farmers Market. <laughs> yeah, so Jaquan Campbell was a UNI student, and he also worked for the UNI Local Food Program, so we do hire students, um, and for the exact reason of getting more people knowledge about the food system and how can we plug them into some different work. So Jaquan did some great work for us and then he decided after he graduated that he would become an AmeriCorps VISTA member. So he did another year with the UNI Local Food Program as a VISTA member working on Greens to Go. <laughs> and in the meantime, he was, he has had this vision of developing um, this co-op. So it's going to, it's We Arose Co-op and basically he is, um, doing outreach and education, as well as working with a group of farmers, as well as having an urban farm himself that is really like this teaching area. Um, all of that under the umbrella of We Arose. So Greens to Go still exists, but we are transitioning it from a UNI local food program to a We Arose program. And that awesome. will be the way that he gets out into the Waterloo community where he grew up um, and he wants to, you know, give back to that community and we'll do the education outreach as well as have that produce for sale in those neighborhoods and working again with very many of the farmers that we were working with in the beginning of the program but he's also expanded that reach to some other farmers that can be part of that network too so it really is an exciting project in terms of greens to go itself and what he has been able to do the last six years but then also what you know we arose is able to do too and also take some of those efforts and make them even bigger um, they also have a home delivery program that they're working on again um, and and reaching reaching some of those neighborhoods that don't have that access to those fresh fruits and vegetables. Episode forty is our first fashion guest, Julia Ahrens of the company Miyakota. Listen to hear why Julia was inspired to use all plant based vegan fabrics in her line, and how choosy she is on picking which factories and manufacturers to work with. She also shares a wonderful, heartwarming story about when she went to go visit one of her manufacturers and no one was there. Listen to see why. Inclusion is also something Julia is very passionate about. And like all smaller startup businesses, you can't always cater to every single person right off the bat. But when she was made aware that her sizes and her representation weren't everything she thought they were, she decided to change. And then I really started doing some more research and I was like, First, I was obviously going to produce in the USA just because as a small brand, it's easier. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's the pros to this? And I found out all the ethical and everything that goes with, along with that. And I was like, why in the world would I produce in a sweatshop that's so counterintuitive to everything I want to do with my life? And then at the same time, I was trying to eat more organic and local and plant-based, blah, 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 food. And I was like, if I want all of this in my food, why, besides benefiting me, 
like how is this benefiting the planet and why should I do also do this with my clothing? So it's kind of like a weird, like if you're going to do it, you might just do it well, do it all right. Like there's no like half in like, oh, this is a vegan ethically made, but we use polyester. Unless like you're a swimwear brand and you're using like recycled polyester for swim because you kind of need that. Their quality looked really great. And they were answering all the questions about uh, their workers that like made me feel happy. But when I went in to meet with this factory, the owner, Eric, it was empty. It was just Eric in the uh, factory. And I was like, it's like, it's like a warehouse space in the Bronx. It's not luxurious. It's not like Instagrammable, but like mm-hmm. no one was there. It was empty. And it was 3.30. And I said, where is everybody? And he goes, they have kids. <laughs> and I was like, I love you. Oh, my gosh. It was like they like to come in early after they drop their kids at school and then they get home so they can pick them up after school. I'm like, yeah, they have the option to work overtime, but like I've gone there at like five o'clock and they're all saying goodbye. Some people are still working, but usually if you go there after three o'clock, it's mostly empty. And if you want to work overtime, you have the option, but by no means are you being held there. Wow. I got like emotional. That was his response. And to your, like, I mean... for that to be his response too clearly he cares and he's not he's not running a slave labor operation which very much still exists and oh oh, man you don't think it exists in the united states but they're like forever 21 does some production in california Mm. let me tell you they're not paying them above minimum wage and like eric like minimum i thought Miyakota was having very like when I was picking models I thought I was being very representative and inclusive not necessarily with size because we well when Miyakota started we had small medium large mm-hmm. then everyone asked me for extra small let me just tell you selling an extra small is like selling water to a seal <laughs> like, I don't know. it's like impossible um and then people so I was like if I'm going to do extra small I'm going to do extra large mm-hmm. and then people were like when are you going to be size inclusive so I expanded to extra extra large and then I saw humans on the internet influencers who I was like oh my god I'd love to work with them but I don't make their size and I was like that's a problem red flag and then the person who actually reached out to me who did my fitting for forex pieces uh, Suma Jane Dark, um, they sent me a message on Instagram and they said, I'd love to wear your clothing, but it doesn't come in my size. And I was like, oh, yeah, like that's something I really want to work on. Thank you. Like, I appreciate you. And during COVID, I just had a lot of free time on my hands and a lot of time to think and ruminate and be like, where am I dropping the ball? Mm. And I messaged them and was like, hey, if I was to expand my size range, would you help me? I'd pay you. And they were like, yeah, I'm down. So that started that relationship. And that, my friends, is all for season one. I hope this recap episode was helpful. Hopefully you become reacquainted with some guests that you might have missed, but maybe seen on the Instagram. And we will be back in September with season two of the Ethical Consumer Podcast. This gives you plenty of time to catch up and me plenty of time to record some new episodes for you. Keep following us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, your preferred podcasting platform so that you know when we are back. Have a great summer, everyone. I will see you next fall.